0: Hey everybody, welcome to That Will Never Work. If you wanna find out more or apply to be a guest, head to markrandolph.com. You'll also find a way to pick up an invitation to join the That Will Never Work Discord community. Love it or hate it, crypto is the world in its thrall. Its volatility sparks endless debates from social media to primetime TV. Thanks to all that hype, It's an investment type that has enticed more young people to become investors than ever before. The lucky ones have become millionaires or even billionaires, but it's an age group that traditionally isn't as educated on or even interested in things like tax efficiency or ever gets considered as being a powerful philanthropic donor pool. Well, that's where this week's guest, Pat Duffy, saw his opening. He founded The Giving Block, to help bring a new generation of investors and nonprofits together. And despite the turbulence within crypto this year, it's one hot proposition. But the speed of success comes with its own costs. How do you sculpt company culture at this pace? Is it even possible to keep the culture vision you had as you grow? This is undoubtedly one of my favorite topics to explore. So let's jump right in and get started. Hi, I'm Mark Randolph, co-founder of Netflix and six other companies. Over the years, I've heard that will never work thousands of times, but I've learned there are things we all can do to increase the chances that they will. So join me for That Will Never Work. Pat, welcome to That Will Never Work.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, But why don't you kick us off? Why don't you? fill us in on what you're doing, how is it, how it's going, and maybe lead into what you want to talk about today.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, on uh, on paper, we're one of the less exciting blockchain-related projects. We kind of build <laughs> uh, uh, tools and solutions, kind of selling shovels more than some of the folks who are building on a lot of the technical infrastructure, but we're called The Giving Block. We're a company that sets up nonprofits to take cryptocurrency donations, and then we spend the majority of our time actually helping nonprofits fundraise it and then helping donors uh, figure out the most efficient ways to give, working on kind of the tax literacy standpoint and then building out some of the community components, campaigns, uh, fundraising pledges, et cetera.
0: So, okay, I got to jump in right here. Uh, so, certainly, I've been involved in my share in nonprofits and I know about how that is like an existential skill set for a nonprofit to have, its ability to fundraise effectively. But I've also learned that the more impediments that you put in place for fundraising, the harder. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's how is doing crypto better or easier than me just giving them my credit card?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the, The main reason people donate crypto in the US is because of the tax incentive. So, there's something called a non cash asset. So, you can think about stocks, uh, a house, a car, whatever it might be, in this case, cryptocurrency. Um, If you donate something that is appreciated, the nonprofit gets the donation, full value, you get the write off on your taxes. And then this third kind of magical thing happens where you don't pay taxes uh, on the appreciation of that asset. So, in kind of layman's terms, if you're giving money from a bank account, nonprofit gets a million bucks, you get a million dollar write off when you're giving them cryptocurrency, especially if it's gone up a lot. You bought it at a low price, it's um, up a lot from when you got it a few years ago. Nonprofit gets the million, you get the million dollar write-off and you can erase, you know, $200,000 plus in capital gains taxes on top of uh, the write-off that you're getting. So it's a super powerful tax incentive to give nonprofits assets as direct transfers.
0: So in other words, not to get into too much tax stuff uh, on this podcast, which uh, I don't know, Nothing about it, but in in a nutshell, just so I understand, I get the fully. I can take the full credit for the write-off, even though um, normally, if I was to sell it, I would have only had a considerably lesser amount of cash had I donated the cash. So it just allows me to donate an appreciated asset and not pay the not and avoid the tax on it. Correct.
1: Yeah, that's the main thing. Your cryptocurrency is worth whatever it's worth minus what you owe the IRS in taxes everywhere else in the world. Uh, When you give it to a charity, it's worth what it's worth point blank. Those taxes never then come into play. You can give that full transfer. So if it's like, you know, you bought something for a cent, it's worth a billion dollars. It's, it's a lot of money you can save.
0: So you are not necessarily inventing a new system because basically right now, I know, for example, if I donate stock to a nonprofit it works the same way, which is I get the I get the value of the appreciated asset without having to pay the tax on the appreciated asset. You've just allowed unlocked a different asset class to be able to do that. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it, it's a good way of putting it. We've built kind of the um, the highway system, more or less, between people who are in Web three and then the nonprofit sector. So we weren't the first people to think about donating cryptocurrency to a charity. We were the creators of the term uh, crypto philanthropy and kind of the category design around it. We created the Crypto Giving Pledge. We created Crypto Giving Tuesday, the Giving Tuesday Foundation. We built the first fundraising consultancy that's focused strictly on fundraising crypto gifts from the crypto community. We run the campaigns, we build out the marketing kits. Um, And then on the crypto side, we build integrations into crypto exchanges, NFT platforms, and then help Donors and companies build out kind of CSR and giving that is crypto specific. So we're not the creators of the, the tech or the industries on either side. We just kind of tried to build um, as much of the rails in between.
0: Fantastic. It's, it's I mean, really impressive to be, ha- you know, kind of, because you're right that that is a, a need. And the, it, the need is the very thing that I almost kicked off our conversation by saying, which is that it's, there is a need to do it because you want to be able to donate um, an appreciated asset, but it's really hard, much harder than, um, or was until you guys came along, much harder to do um, than it would have been donating stock or other forms of appreciated assets to uh, a nonprofit. Where did did this idea, where where did, why you, where did this come from?
1: It's a great question. That's, that's my parents' asked me that a lot too i'm not sure they <laughs> believe in a lot of what we're working on i and my um my grandparents said recently to someone in a public setting they were like patrick sells bitcoin to charities and i was like please don't that sounds so not good that's not what we're doing um but why us it's honestly like largely uh, i credit my my co-founder alex wilson he was a guy I knew in college who weren't particularly close he was a cool guy. who ended up in DC at the same time. He got me into trading cryptocurrency. At the same time, I joined the nonprofit sector. I was what's called an integration director, which just meant a nonprofit a leadership transition. And the person was going to be a CEO for the first time. And they brought me in to kind of help figure that out, implement uh, fundraising priorities and all that stuff. So I, I learned everything about crypto that I could at the same time that I learned everything I could about nonprofit fundraising. So I was just very immersed in the two things simultaneously through pure happenstance. Um, And then end of 2017, we saw Pineapple Fund happen. They gave like $56 million to 60 charities. We saw uh, Ashton Kutcher donating crypto on the Ellen DeGeneres show. We saw these things happening that were at the intersection of uh, our interests. And we just did some interviews with nonprofits first figure out like, Hey, how are you taking this? seeing if we could build out a product. We we're both interested in doing a startup. And then we found out really quickly that the bigger issue was um, there was no fundraising or giving culture. The people who gave crypto were few and far between. Um, there was no cohesive element. It, it came in a burst and then completely disappeared. And then the nonprofits weren't fundraising it. There was kind of no stewardship model. Um, so we, we built up the consultancy piece kind of first. And our first uh, 30 or so clients that we earned, we actually earned away from other solutions through helping them fundraise uh, crypto more efficiently.
0: So sounds like this is going great. I mean, how do you measure measure this? Is it dollars, pardon me, or dollars donated?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I would say there, there's what's a the, few- What's the metric, metrics, in other words? Yeah, it, it's how many nonprofits are actively fundraising it, I would say is the core sustainability metric. There's a lot of nonprofits who can- set up a donate crypto button and nothing ever happens. That's kind of what the ecosystem looked like before we started coming through. They had kind of dead zombie crypto acceptance that never got activated. So nonprofits getting online and fundraising it, you know, getting on Twitter, also integrating their capital campaigns. We have kind of um, engagement metrics as we look across our client base. We've got a little over 2000 nonprofits we work with currently. So the number is climbing and their engagement level is up, which is good. And then ultimately, yes, the donation volume, right, on an overall number, how much crypto giving is happening at any given point in time. And then on a uh, per nonprofit basis, that tells us, A, the donation volume is there, and then B, nonprofits control their own destiny. If they actually get set up to take crypto, they can go find some. It's not just going to a handful of nonprofits at the top with kind of a a large existing audience.
0: So this sounds like everything's going great. What do you want to uh, talk
1: about today? Well, the market's not great. So it, it's still kind of like pulling teeth, <laughs> I guess. I appreciate you saying it. It does sound like it's going great. Like we're still uh, grow, we're growing a lot less fast than we expected. Last year, we grew uh, like 10x our client base, went from like 120 clients to 1,200. This year, we've gone from uh, 1,200 to a little over 2,000, which for us is brutal because we were used to like this really fast pace of play. Um, the nonprofit sector definitely... Not as interested, just like every other investor. My parents only want to buy Amazon stock when it seems like the pandemic is making it a good time to do it. Crypto bull markets kind of make that stuff happen. Um market dynamics are a big driving force. So that's like we can talk about how that impacts. Um and then I mean in terms of what I would like to talk to you about, our team has scaled really quickly. So I know you're a huge culture guy, and I would just be curious to know we've gone from you know a five to ten person team to about a hundred. Um, in a little over a year, we're trying to maintain a lot of the same cultural components, kind of the startup culture, while also um, making a lot of the things we execute on a bit more concrete. So outside of even the crypto philanthropy piece, I would just be curious to pick your brand on you know, the different companies you've, you've obviously worked on and built and how you've maintained cultural components through scaling.
0: So um, uh, I'm glad we're going to talk about the culture thing because if you're asking me to fix uh, the some of the weakness in the uh, crypto uh, and NFT markets, I'm afraid I can't help you with that. Uh, except to good. say that, I, as I met, <laughs> except to say that I really do. I am really bullish about it. I mean, all these markets uh, undergo a lot of volatility at the, the beginning and. As a get-rich-quick thing, yeah, you know, of course, people are going to get hammered. And uh, just like some people made ridiculous amounts of money who who got out in time. But looking at the long term, I mean, I still think that, you know, crypto has tremendous um, uh, utility. Um, I still think NFTs have tremendous utility. I still think blockchain, tremendous utility. And those things may take a long time to figure out how they manifest themselves. Um, and right now, yes, you can do so many things just as well with existing technology. But that was the same of every new technology coming along. The old, it takes a while to get better. So anyway, all I can do in that regards is hang in there. And I think it uh, it does it will come back and it does come back. Um, the cultural one, though, we certainly can talk about um, a little bit. So tell me, what, what have you noticed has happening? Do you have cause for concern or is this like a preemptive uh, thought?
1: No, hopefully preemptive. We like to uh, point stuff out like this before everything is on fire. Um, I would say in in general, it's one of those things where I I think when you're um, hiring at a a certain size, you have um, less experienced people, but they're more kind of um, self-starters, right? Like people kind of get hands dirty into the weeds, willing to do kind of a different thing every day that becomes sort of just naturally whatever it needs to do. And that's constant. Um, And then as you try to transition people, I would say like in that mindset to doing some of that while also kind of calcifying procedures and processes that when folks come in, you can then delegate and get people into systems so that they operate. I think probably under, um, we under indexed for how easy it would be to get new people to take on processes and procedures that we had all kind of figured out how to do. Um, Like the ability to train someone to do something just because you've developed a skill set is like not at all the same thing. Kind of, you know, Carl Sagan type stuff in terms of like science popularization versus like actually doing the physics. Um, That's like a a big area. I I wouldn't say a concern for us, but I, I think in a way that we could get more efficient. I think it causes frustration sometimes. We've got these people who are really good at 180 things across different departments. And then you get folks in who are coming from a lot more structure. They're looking for guidance and a bit of a playbook. And we'd like to have you know more of that there so that we can free people up to be a little bit more strategic and spend less time with like on the fly correction, more time on the um, training at the point of entry.
0: Yeah. I'm a li- It's a little confusing to tell you the truth because it sounds like you're saying you want you want to have all these things codified so no one needs to think about them so that people have more time to think about other stuff? Is that?
1: I would say largely. I think a lot of people are spending time with on-the-fly training and on-the-fly corrections around things that could be codified. And it gives people a lot less time from a leadership standpoint to work on the things that are strategic because they have to micromanage more than they otherwise could if we had a bit more kind of codified. And then I think for the individuals, when you're first coming in, if you had a bit more of a playbook, you could get to level B, C, D a bit quicker. So I think people are they're looking for a direction. Most people are used to coming in here and it's like you figure it out. Uh, and that's kind of the, you know, get your hands dirty, do a little bit of everything, figure it out as you go. Um, but there's more things that are, I guess, becoming expected of people as baseline knowledge that uh, we need to catch up on so that everyone can get to, you know, level B, C, D a bit quicker and go back to being strategic.
0: I've never heard about that before. Just a very, I'm sorry, I'm trying to, I'm trying to to put it into my, my little brain matrix here of how, uh, what that struggle is and to what degree that's cultural versus training. Because in a way, you're asking something really strange of someone coming in, which is shut up and stop thinking. Just do it like I tell you to do it. But, oh, no, and be super creative uh, going forward. Doesn't that sound like a little bit of a mixed message to people?
1: A hundred percent. So I'm following the way that you're framing. It's more that that is happening because of the lack of uh, structure. So it's more like there's five people coming in. We all have to do a little bit of everything. There's nothing being handed down. There are no hand-me-downs. There are no structures. Everyone kind of does their own thing, everyone becomes an expert in everything simultaneously. And now we have the ability to, as you scale, you can't have everyone be fully lateral. You have to have some linear components kind of taken care of. Um, and we have a lot more kind of course correction, time spent on course correction versus time spent establishing the baseline practice. And that can, that can be 10% of your time executing on the linear Ninety percent actually freed up to think. Instead, we have people spending fifty percent on linear course correction, both on the receiving and the the positive end.
0: How well have you and Alex done at managing that way for your reports?
1: It's a great question. Um, I would say one thing we're getting better at is I think we we felt like a complete lack of structure was freeing, um, and it's led to just. some confusion around what actually is desired to be done. I think we've gotten better over the last six months in particular of saying this is the outcome that we all mutually agree on is, you know, the goalpost. Um, And now how you get there is something that you develop strategically. And like we work together on versus I think we left way too much wiggle room on outcomes based decision-making and then would butt heads kind of on that disagreement. I think providing a little bit more strategic direction on the ultimate measurable result and less direction on the actual how we get there has made people feel more human, which I think is essential and important. I think we left the goalpost too open-ended and it just led to a lot of, hey, we got here and here's how we got there. And then arguments around kind of where we were supposed to be going in the first place. I think we thought that would be more freeing and it ended up being um, a, a bit more limiting.
0: Okay. two point. There's two, um, two things that I'm taking away from all this that I think would be helpful advice. Um and you may have heard me say this before it's one of my most uh common things to tell to uh, founders is that the culture stuff can't be what you want it to be. Uh it has to be what it is. Uh it's not aspirational, it's an observational thing. That You have to start by modeling the behavior that you want to become the culture. That if you are, say, we want transparency and you're not transparent, it won't happen. If you say this is all about radical honesty, but you're not radically honest, um, it won't happen. If you're all about, I want everyone to return everyone's calls right away because I want to be known as responsive, but you're not returning people's calls and you're not responsive, it won't happen. So, if you really believe it's really, really important that some of your time be spent building a framework to allow other people to not have to figure it out on their own, then you've got to be demonstrating that that's important to you because, by doing it. Uh, as opposed, because listen, it's fun just be having no structure. I mean, all everybody would love that. So Mm -hmm. you just have to be really really careful about sending the signal that you say one thing and do another. From now on, I want everyone to make sure they're spending the time to codify their practices and really working on that. And then you just kind of wing it all the time. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because everyone goes, this this guy, this is not sincere. This is just uh, aspirational culture. Um, It's not going to happen. So the very, very first thing is... Um, calling yourselves out. Um, and that does require some degree of speaking truth to power. Either you and Alex calling each other on your bad behavior or making sure it's very, very clear for other people in the organization to call you on your bad behavior. Or fa- failing that, if you have someone who's a people person what used to be called HR, um, who is charged really with what is the working atmosphere of this organization, they have to feel they can call you on your actions. That they say, you were always saying how important it is that part of our job as we move forward is to leave structure behind us and you guys don't do it and you just didn't do it. You just came out of a meeting where you demonstrated it's not that important to you by what you said you know, you 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 beat someone up by not moving forward fast enough, um, because they spent the time actually trying to uh, build the structure to leave behind them. So you're saying you want this, but you're certainly not rewarding it. Um, and I'm picking yeah. one which I'm not uh, is an un- slightly unusual one, so I can't articulate it clearly enough, but absolutely. You really have to think through, what does this look like, this behavior that I really want to see become cultural and say, am I doing it? And is Alex doing it? And are our direct reports doing it? Because if you and it's Alex, right? I make sure I'm getting that right. Uh-huh. A-R-E-X? Yep. So if you and Alex aren't doing it, I guarantee your your next level direct reports aren't going to do it. And if they're not doing it, I guarantee that other 90 uh, other ninety people in the organization aren't going to do it. And you're just going to compound your problem for the next 900 people because they're going to learn it from those 90. So every time you say one thing and do another, and it gets weaker and weaker, that weakness gets passed down. So this consistency has to stop at the start, at the very, very, very top. Um, and also something that I've said many times, but I will re- bears repeating here, is that the ways that you communicate these things that are important are not all one size fits all. That there are some things which speak extremely loudly and it's who you reward and who you promote and who you fire. Um, And so you have to make sure that all three of those things are supporting the things you think are important. So if you're going, gosh, we really got to make sure people spend the time easing the way for people who join the organization after them then rather than recognizing the person who successfully signed up 170 nonprofits that month, you recognize the person who signed up 17 because they did this amazing thing by building this entire training piece for their organization. And, and you're gonna get and they're getting a big bonus. Um, and you do that in front of the whole company. And you've sent a very, very loud and strong message that. This stuff's important. This is not just lip service. Or even more strongly, um, your head of uh, something, one of your directors um, is not doing it. Their organization's a mess because everyone doesn't have any sense what they're supposed to do because they're always asking, spending all this time, all the stuff that you don't like. And you decide to part ways with that person. You better not get up in front of the whole company and say, uh, he's leaving the... He or she is leaving to spend more time with her family, or he or she is working to pursue a new opportunity. No, you've got to say, this person was great, incredibly innovative, figured things out faster than so much of us, but they were not doing the most important piece, which is they were not making sure that they didn't figure this out once and not have to figure it out again. And that just didn't fit with who we were. And we had to ask them to, to leave. Believe me, that will get people going, holy shit, he Pat is serious about this. Okay, that's one.
1: I really like that.
0: Um, number two is you've got to bring people in with this mindset uh, because it's not a natural mindset. And you gave a great example, you know, the Carl Sagan one, um, but you see that all the time. You see it all the time in engineering where you've got someone who's an unbelievably great engineer and gets promoted to engineering manager and absolutely sucks. Uh, They don't, uh, you know, she doesn't know how to delegate time. She doesn't know how to communicate clearly. She doesn't, he or she could be an incredible individual contributor, but not know the first thing about how to do it. And this is a very similar problem. So if you think this is one of the critical things you're going to need to get from as you go from zero to, to 1,000, um, you got to hire for that. So you've got to begin doing two things. One, you've got to build in what are the interview slash screening questions I ask to help me know whether this is the right person. And it could be as simple as give me an example of something you've taught to somebody recently. And see what they say. Um, and c- explicit criteria. When you ask, um, you know, Alex, can you interview this candidate? What I'm looking for is is this. Don't tell. Come back and go. Oh, they're a great guy. Don't say. Oh, she's going to really fit in. I'm not, I don't care about that. Tell me about how strong you think they're going to be at doing this. And hire for that. And then the corollary is, and this is an optional one, but don't try and get it perfect. You're looking for something which is not going to be obvious. So when someone's bad at it, let them go. Mm. Recognize your mistakes and move on. I mean, don't get, again, it's a weird set of skill sets we're talking about, which is the ability to be innovative and creative and problem solver But at the same time, to recognize I've got to leave a structure. So it's very, very very common to get that stuff wrong. And when you get it wrong, you have to quickly acknowledge I got it wrong and do something about it. Um, Otherwise, it will never change. And again, that person will now hire 10 more people who all, and that person, even if you tell uh, tell him or her, here's what to look for. (laughs) they're blind to it. They don't understand. And it gets worse. In other words, if you don't fix this stuff now, you'll never fix it. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And then it becomes this preachy thing. Everyone rolls their eyes. Mm. Uh, Because so obviously, A, Pat and Alex don't do it. And B, uh, Jim was clear to all of us in three months that he doesn't do it and they didn't do anything about it. And he hired 10 people who don't do anything about it. In other words, it just becomes something to hold his attention to. So there's two big things, which is one, culture is observational, not aspirational. So you've got to model the behavior you want to see in the rest of the organization or it won't stick. And then number two, you've got to recognize this is a weird thing. It's not, it's not weird. I don't mean it that way. It's an unusual thing you're looking for. And so you've got to learn how to screen for it on the way in and then recognize when you don't have it. And if it's that important to you, that's the wrong person for that job. Uh, If someone's an individual contributor, they don't need to have it necessarily. But if this is someone you're saying, hey, I need you to build, we need a better customer service function. Your expectation is that you're going to begin building out this huge function. And if if that person, and here's what we expect, is you're going to solve a lot of stuff, but we want you to solve it once, not have us constantly solving it for years.
1: That's really helpful. Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think it is, at least for the smaller stages, just from other folks I've talked to, it, it's more common that I think people give it credit for, where you hire people to be good at something, and then they need to be people who help others get good at something. And it's just not there all of a sudden. It's like so weird. You would think the person who's best at a thing would be the best at making people good at a thing. And you're like, interesting. And you, you kind of hit walls as a startup where you have people who, who can do it versus who can, to your point, make it scalable or implement it, build out processes. But I, I take a lot of what you're saying to heart, for sure. I think it's um, in terms of what we incentivize and then like what we do at the top. Uh, Alex and myself both have issues in either direction. Alex is uh, insanely linear incompetence at the point where he doesn't leave enough of a trail because he's just confused when someone isn't doing something properly because he's so insanely efficient where just like i don't know why would anyone even need a playbook for this this is so uh, uh, obvious <laughs> to me kind of like carl sagan where he said like the best scientist he knew couldn't explain concepts just a really bright guy and then i'm just much more lateral so i'm just messy in general and it's something i need to be more disciplined about so i think that's helpful
0: well, it's also recognizing that, you know, it may not, it may not be possible to have both those traits. Uh, and then you got to say, no, from now on, we've can, we can only hire people. If it's important to keep operating at a high level, then the mismatch is hiring people who aren't insanely uh, uh, pattern-recognizant rec- like Alex is. That, that's fine, too. And that's mm-hmm. a decent culture. They go, we don't leave this. We At the given block, we don't leave a trail. And so then you're screening for people on the way in who have the smarts to, they don't need to be, have a playbook. They pick it up really quickly. But then the same thing. If you make a mistake, you've got to correct for it because that person will be lost and then you'll yeah. be frustrated. Or you go the opposite way and go, no, this is, this is really important. And the third thing is that, I mean, and I'll sp- you know, listen, is that you recognize that it may be impossible or very difficult or very rare to find an individual with all of these traits bundled into one. And so you go, no, we just need to begin compensating that someone like Alex gets paired with somebody mm-hmm. um, who's, the, who's the opposite. I mean, it's like basically building many founding teams uh, throughout the organization. I mean, I, you know, I, I know what my, by now, I know very clearly what I'm not very good at. I'm really disorganized. Um, I'm really bad at follow through, um, but what I'm really good at is I hire people to work with me who are exceptionally good at that, and it's a really great teamwork. Um, and I've had that. I attribute a lot of any success that I've had to that. Is that these people, and I can I can go back and name names going all the way back, which is I always worked with this person who was kind of this right hand person for me, who picked up the pieces in a lot of ways and you know kept things on track and i couldn't do that i just can't i don't think that way and that could be another yeah. solution too
1: yeah i feel the same way we're definitely doing a lot more of that project management teams and balance i don't want the the folks on my team to hear this would be like are we incompetent it's like no you're all hyper competent we're just in the transition from individualized hyper competency to um the ability to delegate and then have kind of associate level positions, put them in a position to be successful without mutilating their ability to think. And it, it, we're getting there. It's, um, I, I don't want them to and think we're exaggerating in any direction, but your, your thoughts on this are, are super helpful. And, uh, I we'll think in terms of our hiring practices, we could have better questions.
0: Well, I'll give you one more. Uh, again, it's, 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 don't get paralyzed in the hiring. Uh, you have to pair it with being willing to fess up to your mistakes and do something about them. Because if you say, I've got to get it right every time you'll completely slow down your hiring. Um, And you can't, you've got to go quickly. You've got to take chances. You just got to correct what's wrong. But I'll tell you one more thing, which is going to happen as you scale, which is you have people throughout the organization who are like you just, you self described it extremely, uh, self-directed problem solvers, you know, masters of none. Um, And those may not be the people you want as the company gets bigger. Uh, It's critical at the beginning because you don't know what needs to be solved. And what needs to be solved is different every day. And you want someone who can jump back and forth and doesn't. But eventually, as things stabilize, you go, no, I realize this is repeatable, scalable." And this is the wrong person. That is an incredibly difficult thing to uh, correct. And unfortunately, incredibly important one, which is bringing someone in who was here at the beginning, worked their butt off for two or three years, and still a great person, still incredibly, still brilliant. Just that's not what we need anymore. Hmm. We need specialists who know how to build structure as they're moving forward. So, where do you get to that point? Then you will say how uh, how hard it gets yeah. when you got to say goodbye to people who are your very close early early employees. Yeah, because most of them, most of them won't scale. What makes them phenomenally good at what you're describing, they can't do that other stuff. Just doesn't not. Yeah, it's
1: interesting. Nature. Yeah, and trying to time and identify those intersections. You give me a lot to think about, uh, Pat- Mark. This is like therapy. <laughs> You've got some, you got your work cut out for you, that's for sure. A little bit. But as you yeah. know, no one said it would be easy. <laughs> Agree, yeah.
0: Well, good luck. Uh, I'm really curious uh, how this goes. And hopefully, of course, uh, business starts booming again, so you can jump from 100 to 1,000 employees, so we can really stress test the system. But in some ways, uh, you're lucky. You're being granted a little bit of a reprieve you're taking some of the scaling pressure off, which allows you to begin building those systems and processes that you're talking about so you can demonstrate uh, to everyone just how sincere you are in the importance of doing just that.
1: Yeah. No, I appreciate that. We, we talk about um, less eloquently than the way you just put it, but we talk about that <laughs> a lot internally, exactly what you're describing. Like when we get, we we've built through, because it's crypto, several bear markets at this point. Um, during bull markets, you you get very reflexive, kind of reactive. You start putting out nets and kind of catching what goes by versus figuring out how to, like, target the right types of prospects and onboard them efficiently. Your processes kind of fall to the wayside. And then you also get this weird um, competitive pressure where people will move into the space and establish precedents using sometimes larger brands that actually aren't helpful. They start moving sort of where the conversation is going in a way that, like, You have to start chasing arguments against those positions instead of kind of creating foundational stuff when you have a little bit more room to breathe and design the category. Um, So we like, I mean, during the the bear market in terms of what we get to teach nonprofits is actually kind of the best place to start and what tools they actually need and why it actually matters versus kind of you get a lot more newbies coming in during the bull. Yeah,
0: they need you. They need they need you more now. Well, anyway, good luck. Good luck to you, Pat. Um, Keep me informed. um, And I wish you the best.
1: Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate your time.
0: Well, that wraps up another season of the That Will Never Work. We're going to be taking a short break. But if you can't wait for new episodes, I encourage you to join me in the That Will Never Work Discord community, where we'll keep this conversation going. You can apply for an invitation at markrandolph.com. In the meantime, I'll be working on a bunch of new ideas I have to make this podcast even better. Join me. I'll see you then.